0: slash the codex cantina it all helps us in running the show along with commercials guys so thank you so much we're going to do a quick commercial break and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode so a quick opening remark we're talking about demons part two but if you didn't know there's kind of a controversial chapter that's going on here not only for its content but also for where it's placed when dostoyevsky attempted to write this and send it past the censors if you will his his cat cough basically he basically got <laughs> struck down on this chapter so if you have 10 chapters in part two you don't even have this missing chapter it's gone right? And if you're reading, for example, PV and Valhansky, it's at the end. Uh, We're going to cover that in a separate video so that way it doesn't spoil anyone who hasn't read it. And we'll have a separate video coming up next in the playlist down below to discuss t Cones. So today we're covering part two minus at T-Cone's.
1: Oh man, you have me so intrigued. Like this, it it hypes you up, right? Because you're like, wait a minute, what am I missing? What do I not know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, I, I wonder... I mean, as somebody that, that only has, you know, the 10 parts, how much different of experience do you have it if you read all 11? Does it change the outcome or the feel of of the rest of the book?
0: It's pretty changing on the character view, which is why I want to get your before and after shot with why we, we broke it up this way. So unlike part one, where the plot for me is just like five sentences of like, yeah, I I can't really explain this. Yeah, there's confusion over this why... Captain Lebyadkin is getting this money. At least we have plot and we have more clarity. This is, we're peeling back the onion. We're getting closer to the understanding of What's happening behind the scene in this, in this book of secrets and shadows, if you will?
1: I think there's a lot of the shadows pushed back. There's a burst of sunshine that is shone down on uh, a lot of the characters in the plot development. I loved part two, even missing the you know secretive uh, chapter. I think that there is a lot done for character progression of the story of where is this going and uh, what is Dostoevsky's point, in my opinion, of what he was trying to accomplish with the novel. is definitely revealed in part two.
0: Yeah. We open up after the slap, right? It's It's been eight days, roughly. Nikolai is kind of shuttered up, kind of in his own, living on his own, segregated from the world. And we get to see the the, the rumors of the town. This, this felt like a very Tolstoyan way of exploring how society reacts to events. But eventually, Pielter comes in and basically says, Hey man. And and goes on one of those like verbal (laughs) blahs that Piotr has. Like, do you notice that? Like whenever Piotr comes on the scene, it's like, if this were a soccer game, he's got 90% possession of the talking wand. While like Stavrojin gets maybe like 10% of the talking time.
1: Oh, yeah. p is the Star Wars crawl. He has all of the dialogue to explain everything. He's giving you all the context so you know what's going on. Uh, I I like him for that. I think that it's kind of ingenious the way that that's written in the story because you know every time he comes on, you're going to get some juicy info. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And if you've got a good translation with good footnotes, you'll see that there's lots of references to German materialist tracks and stuff like that in terms of materialism of uh, basically being we're all atoms and stuff like that. But he's always got these secrets, right? Like in terms of these stories of this factory of the Spuhlgen men or however you pronounce it. I'm sorry, we're going to murder words <laughs> if you didn't know already uh, of riots and stuff like that. But he, he seems to be the orchestrator more so than being a member is is one way of looking at it.
1: And what do you think that is? Do you think that's cuz of his age or his position cuz it feels like that he could be the the order of everything.
0: I know too much of what happens with this novel so I can't I can't tell you how I felt in part 2. Oh. Okay. I will say I will say this, we know we know that he's organizing stuff. We know that he's got this these five men and there could be orders of five all over Russia. Is he at the center? Is he not? We we don't know at this point in time, but we do know that Pyotr is driven towards some some end almost. This this chaos, this destruction that is, is just stuck in people's lives. I want to get into the characters, but let's let's go through the plot here. Uh, because basically, what, what might be confusing, I think, to some people people is Stavrogin goes out into the night, right? He heads to Kurilovs, and he's basically asking him to be his second. And, and no, you didn't miss much. Like, what's this duel? If you remember, uh, basically, in the beginning of part one, there was that guy that's like, you can't pull me by the nose. Yeah, (laughs) That that guy's son, Artemy, he's the one that's kind of spreading rumors, is upset about maybe the the disrespect that his father had received. And so basically, Stavrojan is going to accept a duel with this individual. You didn't miss much. It's very quick. And there's also these like letters that aren't brought to light yet, right?
1: Yeah, so we have the duel set up and he's going to ask for a second.
0: And then... Well, then we head upstairs to Shatov's, right? Where we're like, hey... Um, Piotr's totally going to kill you just so you know, like just, just dropping that (laughs) casually. Oh, and then by the way, before I go, let's talk about God and nationalism. Like that's a totally normal thing to do in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep is to warn people that they're about to be murdered and then start talking about life and death with God.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that is kind of, I mean, when I have my best thoughts is in the middle of the night, I wake up and I'm like, hmm. Let me contemplate life here at 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah.
0: See now, had Shatov actually created that book that captures all of the Russian consciousness, he would have seen that coming. I'm I'm joking. All right, bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. So Indeed. so Fedka, you know, we leave and we run into Fedka for the first time, and Fedka, it's like like what are the chances of running into you on the bridge? And he's like, oh, it's cool. Pyotr sent me. I can take care of your problem. Hint hint. Week week. Like I could just. Take out the Lebyadkins from your from your life, and it's like, what, what do you mean by take out? You mean like to dinner, or you mean like, right? It's, <laughs> it's kind of ambiguous, total. But but he's like, no, get away from me. If I see you again, I'll tie you up and throw you to the cops, right? And we head over to Lebyadkin, and that's where uh, it becomes more and more official through this that he's just like, okay, yeah, Mario is my lawful wedded wife, your sister, and the money train's gonna stop because instead of me paying you for all this. Uh, I'm now going to come clean. I'm now going to go public with my marriage with Maria. And I will just take care of her from there, basically, is kind of his promise. And he heads up to see Maria. And that's when she's just like, oh, is that a knife in your hand? Where's my Prince Harry? I don't know. You get out of here. And it's very ambiguous. Like, did he have the knife? Did he not have the knife? Like, what what did she see exactly? It's it's very Dostoevsky to leave it up to the reader to try to parse through what we think steph rogen was doing? because if he had a knife right does he have these unconscious subconscious thoughts of you know taking her out to dinner
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i think that to me I, i felt like he had the knife i don't know why from her view it would have been something that was implied uh that i don't know the killing of their relationship or the killing of their societal clout uh because this is going to be kind of the downfall of them when this all comes to light because of you know how society was arranged in russia at this time period i don't know maybe maybe it is a metaphor but it it felt too real in the story to just be uh fictionalized in in her mind
0: Mm -hmm. okay so he leaves from there and who do we stumble on the way out but our boy fedka again and here's where we have again another interesting thing where he's just like I'll tie you up, and he starts to tie him up, and then he throws money at him and leaves, right? It's 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 almost very reminiscent of some other interactions that we've seen in some other Dostoevsky talks, but we'll, we'll get into that a bit more. Because, you know, aren't we just so excited to get to this duel, right, between Artemy and Stevrogin? But then it's very anticlimactic, right? It's just like, we got our boy Artemy over here who can't hit the broadside of a barn. <laughs> like, like, uh, step all the way up, still misses. And Stavrojan clearly is missing on purpose as he wears his white beaver hat. Right? Like, do we do we have our wild atheistic uh, madman that we saw in the earlier chapters? Or are we seeing a different Stavrogin, right? Like, what, what, what's going on here? Like, we see we see something that just feels off. I would say, which is what makes Stavrogin such an engaging character is how complex he is. And I wonder is
1: is this where he does he have empathy? Uh, does Stavrogin come to a realization of how precious life is? Does he realize that this is pointless uh you realize that he you know he's outclassed um that that he th- this killing is almost um beneath him I don't know there's a lot there but the whole time all I could picture was like three amigos of you know one of them you know shooting up one shooting up and one shooting the side and like hitting the barn <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to oh, your yeah. point uh it, yeah. it, to me it I know it seems a little bit lackluster but it was almost comical of how lackluster it was
0: hmm Well, for how much it was being built up, too, for it just to be like that. And same thing with, like, that Shetov slap. Like, the resolution of that is very strange. So, you know, in terms of resolutions, you know, when we talk about his wild, atheistic playboy years, he had all those girls he was courting, right? Lizaveta being one, and all of a sudden now she's kind of engaged to Mavriki, right? Like Nikolaevich, which again, okay, that, that kind of happened, uh, but here's what's interesting is what's coming up next is the the fate the gala the literary gala and i don't know if you know this or not i i had to bite my lip so hard cuz when we were recording part 1 you you literally said this line i wrote it down because i thought it would be funny to bring it up again you said why aren't these people just throwing their parties to make themselves relevant <laughs> You you clearly know something about Russian culture, my friend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh I mean I, I've read a, a few of Dostoevsky novels, so it's kinda of very apparent, uh, but it just it it finally fit that okay, that's what they're doing.
0: So Yulia throws the gala, right? And it's kinda of funny because you have Vavara that's competing, it's just like oh, I'm gonna throw a party on the same night. <laughs> 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 it felt very... I'll get uh, uh, you. Th- this, is, <laughs> this is aristocracy. Uh, like You know like the horse duel where like the knights would you know fly at each other with like the lance trying to knock each other off the horse? That's the equivalent of what you, Yulia and Vavar are doing is they're doing the, the party duel.
1: Oh, <laughs> a party duel. Okay. I would like to go to either of these parties. I think that would be fun. But I guess it just goes to show of how much different the levels of class mattered in Russia at the time, because you got to think dueling between common people would have been a fist fight outside of a bar, but dueling for upper elites, uh, is, is throwing a fancier party. Isn't that kind of incredible of the level of, of money or wealth that's kind of being thrown around here, e- even, even for, you know, Russia at this time period.
0: Well, or even just knife in the back for the peasants compared to the rigmarole that aristocracy brings, right? In terms of even just how duels are conducted with seconds and how many steps you take and agreements uh, with with these parties of who you invite, when you invite them, on what day you invite them. There's so many more rules that come with power and money compared to those that have none of it.
1: That's a good point. I also think about this of what was we haven't talked a lot about it of the, the point of the whole novel because we're not finished yet. Um, But demons seems to be like, is Dostoevsky trying to inform the lower class? I mean, I know that we have the, the nihilistic stuff. I know we have the political stuff, but there's also a little bit of that uh, commentary on class divide in Russia at the time, because we know how that's going to end up is the, the, the fall of the elite and, you know, communism eventually coming into Russia. But is he trying to communicate to the lower classes of of how bad off they have it, or you know how uh, taken advantage of they are? I, I I feel like if if the serfs and the lower class could read and they got a hold of this novel, they would have devoured it, feeling like they were being spoken to of let's rise up above the the elites, well, the aristocracy.
0: This is of course post serf. Uh, reforms so this is this is after they've been you know released and they're now peasants per se right there's no more serfdom in terms of the timing yeah. um you know you could take literature the way that you want but I think I think what dostoevsky feels for the peasant class is more compassion pity mm. more so than Shaking a finger of education, or you ought to. I I don't know how much is they're doing right because when you look at the, the piotr is kind of um not as wealthy as Stepan, and he clearly doesn't have as much power as someone as like the general, right? So when we're talking about Yulia, there's these scenes here where she's hanging out with Pyotr, right? like she's 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 feeling relevant in the same way that Valvara is trying to feel relevant with the new generation. Hers is one of kind of like entertaining Piotr's desires and, and his he's the one kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. And you've got literally what's what's her husband's title? Is it like a general, diplomat? I can't remember his exact title, but he's a very upper, well-to-do person in the government, right? And he has problems with Piotr, who's lower class. So so I guess this is a good class discussion. I don't know if I don't know if I'd phrase it the same way that you do. But how does someone with less power and less control influence or change things, right? And maybe it's not they step into the same class and role that other, you know, the aristocracy has, but maybe they have different ways of fighting a change, basically, how to cause a change, essentially. I don't know if his goal is to incite that, but I think, you know, people talk about this prof- prophetic vision that Dostoevsky had. And, and I think they lay that over here, and I think there's there's a story here, but I don't think that changes the literary merit of this novel, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I guess I just, it's easy to draw those parallels because we can insert that that prophetic vision because it fits so well with the narrative of, to use your word, change that will come about in the late 19th century in the early 20th century in uh, the Russia and eventually the USSR. So I guess that's why it's it's so easy to draw that conclusion. Although you know we're just we're 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 seeing you know buy a red car, see a red car, <laughs> type conclusions. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, if you look at Piotr's the ending of this chapter two to finish the plot summary, is you'll notice that he's going to Kirillov to talk about like like hey you're going to commit suicide when we want right like like hey you guys aren't going to tattle or, or inform the government are you for our <laughs> secret revolution. He's pulling so many strings behind the scenes. Meanwhile, the Virginsky's are throwing this party, again, to kind of seem relevant, but they're these nihilistic people who are entertaining things like this, that are, are getting a kick off of the thrill of, of being, of radicalizing society, of causing change, of a big difference of how we operate. And that kind of brings it to kind of like a conclusion here, where we have, um kind of like the, the Shapulgan writers or uh, workers beginning to kind of riot and have questions over ownership of, of property. Who should be owning things when it comes to that? Which were movements that started, you know, clearly decades before, you know, the 1917 revolution and move forward. And Dostoevsky has no idea where it's going to go, right? But he sees the unrest. He sees the problems of society at a time and uses those to depict how, we have discussions of ownership and how we have discussions of change.
1: And the whole time while I'm reading this, I'm just kind of like he and Han over my uh, my my Kindle, and I'm like, just if you guys would all just work together and shut up, you could make this better. And uh, <laughs> it just it just feels like uh, the 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 divide is so far that they can't see past each other to make things better. Uh, and it's just, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, but it's yeah. just very frustrating from uh, a historian's standpoint of just, you know, <laughs> make this work, make this work, you know, because it is a work of fiction, and I just feel like, you know, come on, Dostoevsky, give me the happy ending. I mean, I know he's not <laughs> going to because that's not him, but <laughs> one can dream, right?
0: So let's talk about our boy, Stavrojen here, Nikolai. He's an interesting, enigmatic, charming, maybe empty character of some sorts, right? But I think he's the through line to this novel. He's the closest we're going to get, I think, to a hero. And the way that he was, I don't know if you noticed this, but a through line through this whole novel is when he was first introduced in part one. It says, one would have thought that he must be a paragon of beauty. Yet at the same time, there seemed something repellent about him. It was said that his face suggested a mask so Hmm. in the beginning we're introducing this character of beauty of leadership of of almost awe-inspiring kind of but it's a mask so you as a reader a dostoevsky reader must start asking the question why is this the the very simple answer of Oh we 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 put on a mask to enter society or we aren't always who we pretend to be. I think Dostoevsky actually has a much more complex story here.
1: Okay, interesting. So it's not just that we're doing this to shield ourselves or you know protect our true inner id, our ego, whatever from others. So what is what is his goal then?
0: Well let, let, let's put it this way. This mask concept that that seems to kind of follow Stevrogin. even in the slap scene, they talk about it. In this part, we have his wife doesn't know who he is anymore, right? Where's my Prince Harry, right? A Shakespeare reference. Why are you carrying this knife? Uh, Shatov becomes almost upset. Were you really an atheist this whole time? What about those times and the letters that we shared in America, Mm. right? And then you even have Piotr that finally comes up to him, right, before this missing chapter scene. And we have a quote from where he says, Stavrojan finally glanced at him and was struck. This was not the same look, not the same voice as always. Or, as in the room just now, he saw almost a different face. Mm. So Piotr sees a different face, but but is it Piotr doesn't know who, who Stavrojan is? Or is it Stavrojan doesn't know who he is? Because oh. because Fedka even has a quote very strange character, by the way, <laughs> just showing up on this bridge. Hey, come on, man. let me stab your wife, bro. Give me some money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a little random, yes. A little, little out of left field. Random but, Fedka. I mean, it, it, it fits, though, into all the craziness that is ensuing. So, I mean, it's not it's not out of character, I guess, for the novel. Yeah.
0: Well, and there's, there's humor to this novel. As dark as it is, it is hilarious, too, at times. But Fedka says of Piotr, he says he invents a man and then lives with him. How did you take that quote?
1: I guess that we see what we want to see in people that when you have a relationship with somebody, it, it's always, it is two ways, but from your perspective, it's only one way that the relationship is going. So that's how you're going to interact with this person. And I guess like, I guess you go back to Stravogin is, uh, what, what is his purpose? What is his goal? What is his motive? And I just I feel like he's so complicated of a character. And I I guess I I don't want to call him a hero, um, but he's what we have to see growth. And I guess that's what we're seeing or the other characters are seeing him is they're seeing his growth and maybe they don't agree with how he is changing.
0: I think the time is right to bring up this point now. Where if you, if you read the foreword or even some of like the writings and background of this story, why did Dostoevsky write this? There's probably many, many, many different reasons layered over each other. But one of the accounts is when his brother-in-law wrote to him about an infamous story of Ivan Ivanov. Okay, which you you probably don't know this story. I don't think many people do, but it's something that was highlighted in Dostoevsky's mind. But in November twenty on November twenty-first. 1869, Ivanov was murdered as part mm-hmm. of the Petrov Academy, a very famous scene that sparked a lot of this novel. And is basically his murder was ordered by Sergei Nietzschev, a a 21-year-old revolutionary nihilist, right? So again, this is starting to sound familiar about some of his his writings about this materialism and how we influenced the youth. But I guess what Nietzschev's point is, when you asked him why he did it, It was part to solidify a blood pact, a way to get people to work for him. Now go back to that scene with Piotr, when he, remember, he's just like, you're not going to inform, right? You're not going to inform. And remember when Shatov leaves, and Stavrojan's like, you can't have him. He knows that Piotr plans to kill him, because by killing him, that makes everyone loyal to Piotr. By basically buying their allegiance through fear and of constant dread of death for betraying the the circle right and that's what this Nietzscheff was famous for in the papers is basically the murder of this this Ivan Ivanov who simply changed his mind right and that's perhaps our Savrogin is he a character who was an atheist I don't know I think so is he a character who was a wild man I don't know. I think so. He did some pretty crazy things, right? And does he no longer think that way? I don't know. I don't have evidence to say that he doesn't because he's so quiet a lot of the times, right? We don't get the inner monologue that we need of Stavrogin. but we know he's a character that might be no longer aligned with revolutionary ideals because he says so. He says, I'm not in this group. They just so happen to align with me in certain things, so I just have gone along with them so is he our character that changes his mind and if he does change his mind what does that mean right when he's got a wife when he's got friends in this group when he's got family members do they come under threat is it easy, is it easy just to leave the mob right like like this isn't like quitting a job right like when you're trying yeah. to quit this illegal revolutionary circle that clearly would be exiled perhaps to siberia if not worse uh, it's going to craze and because May cause pause. I guess I should say, before acting, and and clearly we see a lot of pause from Stepanov. Uh I
1: think we have to go back to your point of Inov, uh, Ivanov. I think we have actually talked about him, maybe off camera. We have because we've done many uh, Dostoevsky novels, and I remember that story of him being almost a martyr to the cause. And I'm very worried um, that Strovanov is going to be that martyr and that they're going to kill him for the cause. Uh, but I just think that...
0: Wait, hang on. Did you just call him Strogonov? Strovogin? <laughs>
1: Stroke. Stro- I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know I mess up these names. Uh, but I, I feel like that he has so much going on in his life uh, that he doesn't know what he wants and that this is an opportunity for him to... Be a, a maybe, uh, because it he's trying to figure himself out. He's trying to figure out Russia. Mm. I think he's trying to figure out what it means to be Russian. Uh, mm-hmm. He he's he's seems very well educated, and I think that's very noble of him. Uh, I'm worried for his life. I I don't know if he's going to make it out of the novel alive. Oh,
0: do you think he knows whether he's changed his mind or not? Because how do you? interpret the scene the second scene with fedka when he's like give me money and i'll stab i'll stab your wife i'll take out captain libby adkin right when he's leaving do you remember what he throws at fedka i don't he throws money at him so is he buying fedka's services to take care of his wife or is he just acting out in rage throwing things away which one is it? Is his subconscious in control? Is his conscious in control? What does Stavrogin want?
1: There's obviously many different interpretations you can take from that, but I guess the way that I thought of it is that that's how uh rich rich people sometimes solve their problem is through money. Just throw money at it. Uh, that he's just he's throwing money at it to get rid of him. I I don't think he's paying him for the services of uh, taking out his wife. Uh, that's not how I interpreted it.
0: So let's talk. So let's move into power a little bit, and I'll explain why. But power in Russia at this point in time, where is ultimate power?
1: The czar. Right, right.
0: Now, people like Pyotr, right, who are not – he's not noble-born, right? Stepan isn't noble-born. He's, he's definitely not um, – he doesn't come with the power, I guess, Yulia's husband comes with. Let's start there, right? Right. So, so he's not nearly as powerful as perhaps as some other people, right? So can Piotr by himself take absolute control? Can he, can he just take over the Tsar? And the answer to that is clearly no, right? Like you can't just walk in and take out the Tsar as a single dude.
1: No, clearly not. <laughs> no, I don't think no matter how high ranking you are, you're going to be able to achieve that. So obviously there's got to be some strategery that goes on.
0: Well, this is where I, I, this novel shines for me because we've talked about going along in groups for the sole purpose of belonging, of having a sense of social currency, right? Which by itself, is that universally bad? I, I don't think universally, no, right? Because sometimes people join up and they, they do start to believe they do start to cause good for certain purposes and stuff like that, that you can't say it's universally bad, Right. But that m- also means you can't say it's not universally not...
1: Not not good?
0: <laughs> y- yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I see where you're going. Yeah, I'm following along. <laughs>
0: so evil and corruption, to me, are a big part of this. So Piotr can't cause direct change, but he can influence, right? We've talked about um F- uh, Philip Zimbardo. Uh,
1: a few times, yes.
0: He wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect that I really enjoyed, And the name Lucifer Effect, where's where's that come from, right? Because there's the biblical story of basically Satan was an angel, right? He tried to have a rebellion against God and people who read Dostoevsky, that rebellion word should make your ears perk up. But it's basically how did good angels become bad and try to rise up and take over from God's power, right? Like how did good become bad? How did that influence begin? And that's part of kind of the influence behind the uh, Stanford uh, uh, prison experiments. We've talked about that before, too. Did you remember those?
1: Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually have seen the videos of those and have shown them to my students in the past before. But I think it's interesting that you bring that up of, you know, the looser effect, because it is a matter of perspective as well uh, that we have talked so often on this channel that, when you look at, you know, the, the devil and from his perspective, he was looking for, you know, freedom of choice. And I, I think that a lot of characters in Demons, um, you know, devil demons, are are looking for choice. They're looking for a way to break out of, you know, traditional Russian society, being locked into, you know, the the, the the patriarch into being blocked into, you know, high society and all of this is how can we break these norms? And that feels like the point of how the novel is, is moving towards.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Let's talk about Piotr's introduction because we talked a lot about Stavrojan and his mask, right? What does he represent? Is he this guy that changed his mind? Is he still the wild man he once was when Piotr is introduced at the end of part one. I love this little quote here. It's very subtle, but it says his words patterned out like smooth, big grains, always well chosen and at your service. At first mm-hmm. this attracted one, but afterwards it became repulsive just because of this overdistinct articulation, this string of ever ready words. One somehow began to imagine that he must have a tongue of a special shape. Somehow, especially long and thin, extremely red, with a very sharp, everlastingly active little tip.
1: And I mm. couldn't help but
0: kind of focus mm. on this this tip, right? Like, you can't help but imagine like a snake or reptile or even devil, you know, forked tongue, perhaps when you start to imagine Piotr. And I think you get this, this sense of evil from him, right? The, the fact that he perhaps is corrupting others potentially or taking advantage of others who are dissatisfied with their situation right and that's what's so interesting about those those stanford prison experiments for those that don't know they took nine 18 students nine guards nine prisoners and said go run a prison and didn't really give them any direction like they didn't tell them how are how to be a good guard what's ethically right to be a guard they just stuck them in Right. So prisoners do what prisoners do. They try to escape like on the second day and they had to like, you know, guards stop it. They had to start doing uh, pushups. They had to start being stripped naked. They started the the guards started spraying them with fire extinguishers, really uh, questionable things to put students in to the point where like four or five of them broke down and had to like be yanked out of the experiment earlier for psychological terror. Right. So oh,
1: well, they they ended the whole experiment early. Remember they didn't even, they couldn't even finish the whole thing because of how horrific it got. There's the, they were beating them. And like, it's just that the, your psyche, just like in this novel of you become what you see or what you're seen as. And I think that's what like Piotr is. He's seen as the devil. He's seen as the bad guy, so he's embodying that because that's how people are looking at me. He's like, well, I might as well. That's what they think of me. Why should I try to change it or be any different?
0: But is it as simple as just there's bad apples? Like, was Satan just a bad apple and he, can flu- he influenced some weak-willed people? Is it, is it really that easy? And I think Zimbardo, he he puts up a good argument. Yes. <laughs> he puts up a good argument that no one denies that there's not bad apples, Right, like I don't think anyone really disagrees that. But at the same time, I think most people would agree too that there are people who experience both sides, that there's good and power. How did how did how did nine perfectly normal Stanford University students become sadistic torturers in this experiment? And to your point, it's the idea of power that comes into play, the uh, expectation of your role, even. Where sometimes, when your role requires you to be authoritative or to do certain things that you might consider unethical, you might move forward with it because it's not you; it's your job requiring it. Which, again, very predictive of mm-hmm. kind of World War II and kind of a lot of the human atrocities that happened there. That that it's not just bad apples; it's what what uh, what, what you could call a bad barrel, right? If you put a perfectly good cucumber, is it cucumber into a vinegar batch, right? You're you're gonna get pickles. You can't have <laughs> you can't have a good cucumber come out of a bad barrel of, of vinegar, right? And it's the same argument with society, right? That is how so many normal, decent people that as soon as they get power or they get hungry or dissatisfied, that's how the barrel influences you. That's how Lucifer. Takes over good angels and how good people start to do bad things. There's no such thing as a good person and a bad person. There's good people that make bad choices too.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. It's uh, I love the analogy of the barrel too that you use because a barrel you think of is you know enclosed and you can only see and know what is inside of your barrel and. I think that Pyotr is in a barrel, right? He's only seeing what he wants to see, but he's also only seen by those that are inside the barrel with him. And I don't know if that truly makes him evil or not, but it makes him evil-ish, evil adjacent inside of his social circle. And as a result, he's trying to make change. I I don't think he's going to make large change on a large scale because the novel obviously feels a little bit, you know, uh, historical fiction. Uh, but he, mm-hmm. he's definitely making some moves and that seems very n- the norm for somebody that has gotten a little bit of taste of power that has almost corrupted them to sort of the point of evil, but I don't think he's genuinely evil for evil's sake.
0: No, I don't either. There There's some really good quotes here how he's just like, well, I'm not actually here to cause the harm. Like, he's just there for the entertainment almost. He, um... we we mentioned earlier he's not going to go overthrow the czar by himself right like that's not where power is that's not how power corrupts to to the stanford exhibits right it's more about how he can incite unrest when there's already a society that's disenfranchised with their life because if you remember there were strikes that were starting to happen in this novel Dostoevsky isn't inventing this. He's starting to see this, right? He sees how strikes are starting to happen. And you can see this chart, actually, even from Wikipedia, where they talk about from like 62 to 69, there's an average of six strikes, right? And that climbed to 20 in the following decades, then to 33 in the following decades. And then by 1895 to 1905, you've got 176 annual strikes. People are not happy. With their circumstance, which makes it easier for them to be influenced by the bad barrel problem, which goes to our earlier point in part one. We talked about how that Carl Jung quote about how people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Well, here's where you Mm. see how Piotr and Dostoevsky writing what most people would call prophetically being the person who's inciting an unrest he's pissing his dad off who's there who's sitting there <laughs> with you know um the Chernyshevsky novel sitting there on his head t- like revolutionary material he's got the german materialism uh, tracks in his apartment you see the way that he's 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 like sowing the seeds of, of of unrest almost in society
1: and that was something very common i think this time period as well you see that across uh, many different nations in the late, you know, nineteenth century. This idea of civil unrest is is becoming more and more popular. It's um, it's the fad. It's the thing to do at the time. And uh, I don't know if that is a good or a bad thing, but the idea of striking and, and riots and these radical views as more people are being freed, uh, slavery has ended, serfdom has ended, more people are learning to be able to read and write, newer technologies are allowing us to eat healthier, live longer. I think a lot of those things are all influencing this idea of that the lower classes want better for themselves and somebody like Piotr is going to exploit that for maybe good intentions on the back end but for personal gain in the short term.
0: Yeah. Well, I think this radicalism and you know intellectualism challenge is where the heart of this novel is for me in terms of what I enjoyed the most out of it because if you think about how do, you, how do you incite this unrest, right? How do, how do you get people to to strike together to, to form a revolution, right? If that's really our goal, right? Or is it radicalism for the sake of radicalism? But you have to have literature, you have to have tracks, right? And you see plenty of examples of that with the Chernyshevsky novel, with the German materialists. You have um, Shatov with his printing press, right? And we need funding, right? So that's how we manipulate Yulia <laughs> into throwing these parties to basically fund the revolution. It's brilliant the way that one man can pull together all these different movements and then almost scapegoat it with this plan. Like we don't know what it is, but he's just like, okay, um, Mr. Kirillov, you're gonna commit suicide. You're super important to my plan. Like, like, like we kind of have these hints as to what's going on, but we don't know for sure. Let me ask you as a first-time reader, what are your thoughts? Like what do you what do you think his radicalism ideas are what do you think he's trying to to push towards and how is he going to use Kirillov in in this situation with Shatov I don't know
1: what he's pushing towards I uh just from like my prior knowledge I, I feel like anarchy is is too extreme but definitely a breakdown of the social norms uh I feel like that if he can uh manipulate people in a well enough way uh that it would it would uh show that the change can take place that change can happen and that the right people can make the right changes and then russian society is going to uh uh have another revolution like the end of serfdom uh so i don't know it it feels like it it it, it feels it feels like it's too slow going for the novel and I guess I I guess like where is the pacing of that of like how are we going to get to you know the finish line
0: What are your thoughts on the whole religious element right so we have the curse of knowledge of knowing where Russia went after this decades later right with atheism with the Soviet Russia coming up and basically campaigning destroying churches And you have all these quotes from Shatov where he says, to start a rebellion in Russia, one must inevitably begin with atheism. Really bold statement for something that's that's decades later. But we have all these talks about how the the different nations had their different gods, right? The Jews lived only to wait for their true God and left their true God for the world. The Greeks defied nature and bequeathed the world their religion, that is, philosophy and art. Rome defied the nation in the state and bequeathed the state to the nations. France, throughout her whole long history, had simply been the embodiment and development of the idea of the Roman god. And if she had finally flung her Roman god down into the abyss and plunged into atheism, which, for the time being, they call socialism, that is solely because atheism is, after all, healthier than Roman Catholicism. One paragraph (laughs) brilliantly just summarizes so many different views there about enlightenment and the movements that are happening about uh, selling out God for the purpose of, of nature and stuff like that. Like, like what do you think about this with basically Dostoevsky's attack on socialism, Dostoevsky's attack on uh, atheism being worse than Roman Catholicism that there's just, there's a lot here.
1: Whew, a lot to unpack. Uh, So one, love the quote. Amazing. Two, it comes down to nationalism. When I would, when I teach this all the time, I would ask my students, "What is nationalism? What does that mean? How do we identify as American, our our national identity?" And it it is always very difficult for students. Um, but we would always come back to, "Well, uh, we we were we are a free nation. We don't have a king." Uh, people get to vote and make choices for their political leaders, or uh, we freed our slaves um or you know we're good people, and uh we you know we we defeated the evil um people in World War One and World War two. It seems to be these big monumental events that helped define nationalism. But there was always something else that would always be brought up in our discussions, and it was that of religion. And a lot of people uh, believe that, you know, we are a Christian nation, and that, you know, our national identity revolves around a religion, because as we've talked about many times on this channel, religion is a very important part of many people's lives. And many people, it is the most important part of their life. It defines them. It's it's what they work towards, what they live by. And as Russians, they are, you know, Russian Orthodox Christians. That is a national identity for Russia. And for them to break the cycle that they're in and have true change, they're going to have to change that identity. And the core root of that identity is... Orthodox Christianity, and so for, I think, Dostoevsky, that, you know, breaking that mold is is the biggest threat to his society, what his norm is, and because we have, you know, what happens later, we know that that's true. That does happen when when Russia changes its national identity based on not only politics and gets rid of its czar, but does become more of a, a nihilistic atheist society moving towards socialism it does lose its national identity of of christianity uh, so I mean that that's very much apparent of of what takes place and transpires
0: if you look at um there's like a, a pretty famous i think it was 2015 2016 study the Pew Institute Center or Pew Center something like that they they did some they did a lot of research into Uh, And I'll put a link, I'll find a link to it, but there's like a lot of research into the national identity and the idea of religion and a lot of Eastern minded individuals in terms of like Russian Orthodoxy, like you said earlier, they view if if you weren't Russian Orthodox in in 2015, even you could be their neighbor, but you weren't their family, you weren't Mm. Russian unless you were Russian Orthodox, right? You had to belong to this organization. Again, that currentization, that social currency, even in a sense, where they, I think they've, I know based on statistics, like a, a broad stroke, they view belonging as much more mm-hmm. important than belief, even at times. A broad statement, because here in America, belief almost happens we don't have as much belonging, per se, like it compared to Russian Orthodoxy. We don't even have as much behaviors, perhaps, as some other countries, too. There's those three Bs, the belief, behaviors, and belonging. Um, we have different priorities in different regions, broad stroke. But the belonging aspect, I think, to your point, is the most important part to a lot of Eastern countries. And while Russian Orthodoxy was one of the biggest ones on that, there were other countries in that too. As you move West into Poland and some of the other more um, Roman, you know, Western Catholicism States, those are going to be much more on the belief side. And it's very different the way that these two interact and view their neighbors, even because of, of very small things like this as religion and your national identity.
1: And remember, religion is always being attacked by the evolution of religion itself, as you know, religious texts are reviewed and rewritten and translated from one language to another. That religion is going to evolve itself, and I, I feel that uh, you know, at this time period, a very tumultuous time period as the, in the world as a whole, not just Russia, uh, but uh, across the world, uh is probably feeling a little attacked, and this knowledge that. Um, if things could change because he is seeing a little bit of change. I mean, in a microcosm, he is, he's thinking to himself, I can immortalize, you know, what has taken place and transpired in this novel and almost lock into a a piece of history of how, if, if it doesn't change. And again, I haven't read the whole novel. uh, If, if things don't progress for the way they are, we don't maybe have the USSR. um, And that, Russia gets to keep its identity of, uh, you know, the God that it sees that binds them together.
0: Yeah. I remember reading a quote uh, to your point that Dostoevsky even commented that he, he wasn't sure who's the true custodian of Russia's future. Is it the government? Is it the church, right? Like who is going to lead Russia into the future? Is it this young nihilistic rising up uh, revolutionaries and, and I think Dostoevsky was probably a little bit scared, particularly being more Western in Germany at the time, writing back. Uh, I guess I don't know where and oh, he was in Berlin, I think it was. Um, but looking, you know, out from the outside in, if you will, that it could be a little bit scary. Now, now one of the things I said that I'd want to do to end each kind of these talks was to mention that the number one question, which is what is the devil or demons in this story? What does it mean?
1: I think I've kind of changed my tune a little bit, not to any one individual now. Uh, I think that to to bring back to your point that you just made is what does this maybe mean to Dostoevsky and what it means to me at this point is just people in general. It is that mass mentality. It is that that group mob mentality of we're going to come together and we're going to make it different and they're they're coming together, the people they're the ones, not religion, not the government, not the military, just the people and that's scary because you don't know what people are going to do that's the
0: truth. <laughs> We put a lot of effort into this. If you guys want to help us out and leave a comment or like down below to help feed the ever hungry YouTube algorithm, we'd certainly appreciate it. We're going to have links to Patreon and super thanks stuff like that. If you'd like to participate and help to continue the future of the channel, we appreciate it. Make sure to stay tuned as we prepare to head into that missing secret chapter at T cones, as well as the final part three wrap up as we wrap up our discussion on demons. I hope you guys are loving this story as much as we are. Uh, Dostoevsky, one of the greatest writers that ever lived. What can I say? Peace out.
1: Peace.